unique podcast taking you behind the badge. Unbelievable stories exploring the day in the life of a first responder. 911 is made possible by Carlos Bail Bonding and Eric Buchanan and Associates, fighting for those that have been denied disability, life, long-term care, and health benefits nationwide. Now, here's your host, DeMarlin Dean. Welcome to 911. I'm claiming this as the world's best podcast that deals with first responders. I mean, we tell you all kinds of stories, the behind the scenes dealing with first responders, what it's really like, not the silly stuff that you see on TV, you know, now not to say that some of the silly stuff you see on TV doesn't actually happen because sometimes it does. And I tell you what, my guest today, gosh, I could probably take the whole show just reading his bio because he has all kinds of specialized training over 3,600 hours of specialized training as it relates to law enforcement. And we'll touch on some of the things that he's done, some of the various assignments that he's done. And of course, we're going to hit some of those crazy calls. But let me just bring on my guest today, my man, Mr. Ryan Dunlap. Ryan, how are you doing? Doing great, brother. I'm proud. I'm glad to be here, man. Well, I am. Be good. I'm glad to have you on here. So I tell you what, just kind of give us a brief rundown of your experience. You know, the, the, if you want to talk about t- say which department you work for, that's fine. Some officers do, some don't. But you share with us what you'd like for us to know about Ryan Dunlap and his, uh, you know, his 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 becoming a police officer. Yeah, man. So I mean, this was kind of a an all an all uh, life plan for me, right. Uh, from, from cradle to grave was law enforcement. So, uh, I was, I was that kid who grew up with a little siren on his bicycle. You know, I would, I pulled my kids over my, my friends over in the neighborhood. We did mock traffic stops, you know, riding BMX bikes and things. That's funny. It was always a big part of the plan for me. So, um, I got my first taste, man. I was I went to Teen Police Academy. You know, when all my other friends were staying at home doing nothing in the summer times, I would go to the police department and they would they would expose us to canine stuff and, and SWAT stuff and we would learn how to do defensive tactics things and I did that instead of Boy Scouts <laughs> and became a police explorer, did the explorer program. And then our agency back home, I was living in Hampton, Virginia at the time. Our agency had something called the Cadet Program. And cadets were between the ages of eighteen and twenty one, not quite old enough to be sworn, but old enough to have a full-time job. So this was a full-time paid with benefits position uh, within the police department. You know, we had badges and uniforms, gun belt, OC pepper spray, ass baton, radio, mark police unit. Wow. <laughs> All of that except the firearm. And and we really, we responded to misdemeanor calls. Uh, a lot of your shoplifting with no perp on scene. Um, we did, you know, misdemeanor parking lot accidents on private property, did some parking enforcement, things like that, but really learned how to communicate effectively in that role. Because early on, the program doesn't look the way it, it did right now. You can tell the difference between a cadet and an officer. But back when we were going through some of me and my partners and we looked just like everybody uh-huh. else. So we were we were it was it was a dangerous time, but it was fun. We learned a lot. <laughs> um yeah, I did the Explore program, uh, was fortunate enough to be invited back uh, to go on to become a sworn officer in the same agency um, at Hampton and did a lot of cool things, man. I, that's where I, I cut my teeth in gang intel, went to specialized unit working um, uh, narcotics and uh, prostitution and alcohol enforcement. 
and the bid unit. Um, did some some other things. Transitioned to uh, an agency in in Atlanta mm-hmm. in 2010, working for uh, Gwinnett County Police Department, and uh, really just kind of picked up where I left off there and got to wear a couple of different hats, work special victims uh, as a detective, burglar detective. I was a um, SWAT hostage negotiator, did crisis intervention in both agencies. I started our forensic audio enhancement lab. Wow. Um, so did some of that. And then um, the the last stint of full-time law enforcement was I transitioned. They, they recruited a handful of special victims detectives to go over to the school police department. Uh, it's kind of unique compared to some, some other agencies where we had a standalone police department for the school system, had our own police chief, our own chain of command, separate from uh, local law enforcement guys there. So joined that agency, did it for about a year and then left, went into ministry and started my my reserve deputy time to kind of maintain my certification. So I was a reserve deputy for a while while I was a pastor. So I would pray for people on Sundays and kick doors in on Mondays. <laughs> so that's a, that's a pretty hard shift. How did you go from, you know, uh, being wanting to be a police officer, even starting getting paid, like you said, at 19 years old, pulling over your 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 fellow neighborhood kids to just walking away and becoming going into the ministry. What what, what happened? What changed? Yeah, man, it was honestly it was family. You know, um, you know, my, you know, you know, we, we're connected in church. And so my wife and I have been have been implanted uh, in church for a really long time. And, and really for years, it was just me playing catch up. Mm-hmm. She grew up in church. Just, that was her thing. And uh, I always tell people it's really hard when you spend your entire career chasing the devil. It's easy to forget what God looks like. <laughs> and so it, it took me some time. But, you know, one day she just came to me and she says, listen, I feel like a single parent. You know, you, you're always out playing GI Joe. It's a SWAT call out and that's for you call out. It's forensics. You're, you're never home and I really want to see you. And so I thought I was going to be able to get away with going over to the school system as a, as a SRO for a little bit. Um, but even that was too much draw on the family. And so I, we were already planted in that church. We were serving in that church and uh, they said, Hey, we want a director of security. Are you interested? And I wasn't, but my wife was. So I took it. Um, Yeah. yeah. Happy uh, wife means happy life. That's right. And the cool thing about it was, honestly, the role was not so different Uh, to be for for context. You know, ministry is what it is. But I was the director of security of a mega church Mm -hmm. in Atlanta. We had 100 at the time, 150 security volunteers. My my guys were FBI, DEA, ATF guys. Um, We had HSI guys and local law enforcement guys. On any given weekend, I had 30 uniform guys working. We were doing everything from DT to firearms training on our team. We had a close protection team. We had a physical security team. So this was not like, you know, you're one or two guys in a sanctuary. We ran a corporate security um, uh, uh, outfit there for that church. And so it was it was close enough to law enforcement that I didn't feel like it was a complete departure from what I knew. And um, and, you know, being able to still be a reserve deputy in that capacity was was uh, was enough to keep me grounded for a little bit. So you ever have to jack anybody up at the church? Oh, come on. Come on. Come on. We so it so here's a cool thing because I was technically both at the same time. I was sworn law enforcement working at the church in the jurisdiction where I had, you know, uh my my per, police powers, you know, as a deputy sheriff, we had statewide authority there. So um I remember this one uh this one moment where we were doing close protection detail with our senior pastors and some others. And the gentleman come in, you know, had the DLRs, didn't look right. 
Uh, <laughs> he had he had the, he had the stare in his eyes. And what happened was, as we were coming out of the sanctuary for one of the services, it was like either a nine or an eleven o'clock service. This person jumped the detail, mm-hmm. kind of jumped between my guys. You know, we got a point guy, two guys on the wing, somebody in the tail, and I was always the hip pocket guy. I was I was always right next to our pastor, and this guy kind of tries to jump the detail, and so the point guy was like, oh. Stand by, you know, <laughs> and he said, no, I just want to have a conversation. I just want to talk to him. And we said, OK, well, there's, you know, there's a protocol. You can't just jump on like that. You know, meet us in the other spot, uh, place in the building and we'll give an opportunity to talk with pastor. So this guy gets in line, decides he wants to have a conversation with pastor. And we cool. You know, we honored it. Um, I had another guy on my staff who was a retired uh, officer from another agency. I won't say which mm-hmm. one, uh, but he was a retired officer as well. And uh, he decided to get in line behind this gentleman. Okay. Because something just, just to make something sure was a little different. Yeah. And um, so as the line is getting down and really what this is, it's just a shaking hands, you know, Oh, thank you. Have a great weekend. We love you. Thank you. Have a great weekend. We love you. Can you pray for me? We'll pray for you. And so the line's coming going down and this guy comes up and is face to face with our senior pastor. And the senior pastor was one of those guys who wanted to be all in in the conversation. He trusted us to do the work we were supposed to do so he could just let his guard down and focus on ministry. Yeah. And as this guy was getting really, really close to the senior pastor, you see his hand kind of go down towards his pocket. Uh-oh. And, you know, mind you, I'm standing right here and my hand starts going this direction, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I'm trying to see what's going on. And uh, he, as he's distracting the senior pastor with paperwork in his hand, he reaches out and grabs a very large knife. Oh, wow. And pulls it right out of his pocket. And almost immediately, my guy that was standing behind him yoked him up from the back. I placed hands right there on his pocket, shielding the knife basically keeping it in his pocket and gripping his hands. Yeah. We came out, press contact in the front, and we just very, very methodically <laughs> and smoothly moved him right outside into the into the loving embrace of our uniformed officers. Wow. And, and nobody knew what happened. That's what I love. It was so smooth, man. My my other uh, plainclothes guys were able to shield the pastor's family and move them to the side. And it was so quick. Everybody was asking, what happened? Mm-hmm. What happened? Yeah. You know, we just kind of very, everything's cool. Everything's good. You know, we debriefed afterwards. You know, nobody recognized this guy was trying to pull his knife out. And we dealt with things like that all the time. But, man, uh, it was really cool having that solid law enforcement team because we communicated the same way. We could communicate with our eyes. A lot of us have tactical experience. And so it was unfortunately uh, it was a good uh, asset. Uh, base of skills to bring into that environment. Yeah, people don't realize how much training really does go in, into that to do it right. Do to do what you yeah. just described, where there's minimal distraction, everyone's safe, and you remove the threat, and most people don't have any idea what's going on. That's that is really tough to do. So, man, yeah. can't believe you having to do jack folks up in church. Golly. Craziness. Yeah, well, we, listen, we yoked a lot of people up in church, man. I mean, the, the list goes on. That was kind of, you know, that was one of the ones that stood out. But, you know, there there's so many, unfortunately, so many encounters like that um, where folks, you know, it, it, it makes sense. People come to church with problems. Right. You know, right. and and whatever they're dealing with, 
whether they can get the help or not, it, it manifests right there in the room. And so you have to be ready to deal with the, uh, a physical manifestation of someone's spiritual brokenness right. is what we would call mm-hmm. it. And so we had to have the eyes and the heart for it. Um, but then we had to have the training to deal with it. And my guys had the training to deal with yeah, it. So. Yeah. So I'll, I mean, again, you, you've done so many, as you said, gang intelligence, crisis intervention, robbery task force, special operations mm-hmm. and on, on burglary, special victims unit, which assignment did you enjoy the most SVU? I, I really loved SVU. Um, I, you know, a lot of guys go into to the career and they just do that thing. They're good at traffic. They're good at motors. They're good at canine, and they just they stay there. And I admire that. Mm-hmm. I really do. That was my plan. You know, my plan was to get in and do one thing. But I had a great mentor, great mentor um, to this day. His name is Jeff. And he told me when I was young, I just come out of cadet program and I was a uniform officer. And he says, don't do anything for more than two years. Okay. Don't do anything for more than two years. Move around, try on different hats. Don't get bored. And it made sense because, you know, maybe this worked the same way for your agency. For us, whenever you got promoted, you had to transfer anyway. They wanted to make sure that you had a well-rounded set of skills and experiences. So if you're a road guy and you got promoted, you're probably going to go to another unit. If you were in CID doing investigations, you got promoted, you're going back to the road, right? They want to put you in professional standards, do backgrounds, do IA or something, because they don't want supervisors who have one track minds or, you know, a singular, a singular lane of experience. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to do it, do it on my own. So um, I did a little bit of everything. And SVU was really the the work that I felt. Um, you know, when you say I want to go make a difference in law enforcement, mm-hmm. that was the thing that nobody questions makes a difference. You know, we've got different opinions about traffic. We've got different opinions about narcotics. And I'm not going to get into any of that. But I can tell you definitively, whenever I've shared with people at the time, uh, the work that I've done protecting innocent people from sexual predators, everybody gets that. Right. They're like, oh, yeah. Right. That makes sense. Right. Right. Yeah, for sure. So I know one day you and I were just chatting after church and I'm not sure if this is when you were with a SVU or what, but you shared a story. Amy. Uh, a lot of times as a police officer, not a lot of times you're always having to use discernment. I mean, you have the law, you have what you can do, and sometimes you have what you should do. And those are not yeah. necessarily the same thing. You could arrest somebody, but it doesn't mean you should arrest that person. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, everything kind of looks a certain way from the outside. But I believe God gives you a gut for a reason. And I know one of my mentors um, who I just learned just passed last week early on, she used to oh, say all the time. Yeah. Trust your gut. Trust your gut. Mm-hmm. You were telling me about a story and I'd like for you to share it about a time where you had to trust your gut. It was a, um, I think it was for a, maybe a child abuse case and mm-hmm. things just didn't line up. And, you know, you, you could have arrested. I think it was a father. Oh yeah. 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 I remember this. I remember, I remember the conversation. So one of the things that we did in special victims was it wasn't just sexual assault cases. We also did uh, child cruelty cases. So all of the cases that came through dealing with, you know, the traditional shaken baby syndrome or extreme um, injuries to children, we, we would investigate. And I got this case with a young, um, young baby. I want to say he was nine, 10 months old. Mm-hmm. And he had been through the hospital so many times down at Atlanta Medical Center for various broken bones and fractures and um, just bruises all over his body. And um, I got called out. This was a call out. So it was like, you know, I'm 
knocked out, you know, <laughs> three o'clock in the morning. And where I live, you know, Atlanta's a big, a big city. We we say it's Atlanta, but I lived in the suburbs. So, you know, driving all the way down there, we're talking about an hour, 20 minute drive, three o'clock in the morning to get down to Atlanta Medical Center. But I got down there and I remember meeting with the parents, meeting with the child. And, and the issue was this particular child had uh, some, some severe injuries to their head that looked like blunt force trauma. Um, I remember, I never forget the neurosurgeon saying, you know, there's fractures along the suture lines, there's uh, contusions in the brain, there are fractures on a parietal lobe and the occipital lobe of the brain. I didn't know what any of that meant before I got there that <laughs> night, you know, and so I was like, you, I need a brain, like I need a diagram, explain it to me. How does this happen? How does this do, do these injuries manifest? And as the doctor was explaining it, you know, and the two of us are kind of talking, you know, I'm saying, how does that, that doesn't sound consistent with blunt force trauma. It sounds consistent with, with maybe something else, but they weren't adding up. Mm -hmm. And I I spoke with the parents and having investigated some of these cases, man, I just had this sense that there was, there wasn't guilt. And so, um, asked a lot of questions. And I remember sitting down with my Sergeant, the son came up, I had to go into, uh, had to go into the office with this case. And I sat down and I said, Hey man, what, what should I do when I really don't know if if these parents are are complicit in their child's injury, you know, um, th- there are some things here that I can't quite figure out. The doctors say, yes, is, this is an abuse case. Uh, we've got uh, plenty of um, fact sets that we can look at to compare it to. But it, it just didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I was given an option. You know, Sergeant was very great. You know, all of our supervisors were fantastic. I said, it's your case. It's not my case. Okay, so if you can't stand on it, don't don't submit it. You can take out the warrants according to the information that you have and the probable cause statements you can establish and whatever you know you got from your search warrants, or you can submit it to the DA's office for uh, and petition for a direct indictment. Allow them to review the case and determine if they want to do that, mm-hmm. uh, or you can just find that it's you know you know there's not enough evidence to to move forward. And you can suspend the case. So I elected option two sent the case over to the DA's office. I said, Hey, here's what I've got. I mean, I had medical records this thick, you know, pictures of the, of the baby's brain and broken bones and the history, everything. It sent it over to DA's office and, uh, never heard anything from it. You know, maybe about a year and a half later. And I think this is what I was sharing with you. My family and I went to the local bowling alley and I was walking through with my son and I hear somebody yelling my name, you know, Detective Dunlap, Detective Dunlap. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know if this is somebody I had not arrested before or what. So, you know, I'm not just casually turning around. I'm looking around to see what's going on. And and there's this this man and he's got this child in his hands and, and uh, the gentleman looked familiar. The baby did not. And uh, he says, you, you don't remember me, but this is, a, you know, he says his, his child's name. Yeah. I never forget his name. He said, but this is so-and-so. And I was like, I said, from from Atlanta Medical Center? He's like, yes, this is him. This is him. Uh, and I said, oh, my gosh. And I said, uh, you know, clearly he wasn't charged or arrested. I said, you know, what happened? He says, remember during our interview, we were talking about the possibility of him having brittle bone disease. He has brittle bone disease. Oh, man. Thank you for believing in us. And, I, bro, I'm telling you, I was like, woo. <laughs> <laughs> we, I had enough to charge. Yeah. He and, and it would have been nobody would have questioned it and it would all wash out in court. But, you know, the humane part of me is just like, I don't want to put somebody through that if they don't have to. Yeah. You know, I don't want you to have to go through two, three years of litigation to get to the point where, oh, 
It was a mistake. Right, right. And, and dust you off and put you back out there. So I felt really good about that call. There weren't many of them. <laughs> you know, I can think of maybe one other case where there was a situation and every other case, you know, we charge and, you know, I'll see you in 70 years for, for the, the dirt that you did. Right. But I was very, very happy that I trusted my instinct with that particular case because um, and, and to get that that full circle moment with the family yes. was, was, was really nice. Really yes. nice. Cause so often uh, as, as officers, you don't, you, you rarely, especially patrol, but mm-hmm. maybe not so much when you're an investigator, but, but you rarely get that full circle moment. You know, you do your part and you're done, you know, um, yeah. you don't see what happens or the other side and, and, you know, get to hear those happy stories. That's, that's really cool. So that's something that you should be really proud of. And I'm going to shift gears real hard and talk about something that you should not be proud of at all. And uh, I want you to tell me your most embarrassing moment on the job. Oh, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so this <laughs> this would probably be my my academy. I was just out of academy. Just out of academy, it was it was an eighty. I had an accidental discharge, <laughs> uh, but 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 how it happened? Wait, was, say that again. Was, you 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 said that really pretty quick. It was an eighty accidental discharge. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm gonna get to it. I'm gonna get to it. It was a learning opportunity uh, for sure. Right. Um. So yeah, I had I had an accidental discharge at home. So, uh, our agency at the time we were shooting Smith and Wesson forty five eighty six. It's all steel handgun, double action only, magazine disconnect. It was this massive gun, you know, and, and for me at that time, you know, we're talking, gosh, uh, how many years ago was that? Almost 20 years ago, I guess. Yeah. About, yeah. So, so I was, I was not, you know, I'm, I got a, I got some meat on me now. I was about 140 pounds soaking wet. <laughs> You know, I cannot so imagine I, you at 140 pounds because you. Oh you man, I was I was a shrimp. <laughs> I was a shrimp, man. This is before jujitsu and and body training and you know all of that. So, uh, just the the massive weight for this double action only, you know, semi automatic 45 caliber handgun. It it I needed practice, mm-hmm. and so they would send us home and always tell us, "Hey, make sure you're dry firing." Dry fire, dry fire, dry fire, and so always point your weapon in a safe direction and. You know, all the all the firearm safety stuff. So I'm at home one day, I'm off and I've got my uh, my my service pistol out and uh, I'm dry firing into the ground, into our, our carpet. Um, no ammo's close by, nothing, you know, so I'm, I'm doing everything the way I'm supposed to do it. And I'm just, you know, slide the rack back, slide it back and just working on that that muscle memory. My wife was watching a TV show, but we had somewhere to go. We were supposed to go to the mall or something. So she's like, oh, let's go. Put my stuff away, load, charge, holster, (laughs) ready to go. (laughs) As we're walking out the door, my wife says, oh, the show's back on from commercial. It's not done yet. Uh, Let's just wait for this this little segment or whatever. So I was like, all right, cool. We'll just wait for the little show to be over. I'm not thinking. Would you know... (laughs) I sat right down. Did, I did. I sat right. Down. I reached right, right in the holster, and went. <laughs> just, just shot a massive hole in the floor, oh man. My goodness. I was like, I, I mean, didn't check nothing, you know. And so, I, I mean, I must have been. 
I must have been two months on the job. Oh, like, man. I'm like, I'm green, uh, you know, like just just out of field training. You know what I mean? And I had to pick up the phone and call my supervisor and say, man, I uh, I had an AD. And here's what was oh, funny. Oh, you did man. tell? I Shoot, I wouldn't have told nobody. Oh, I would have went and got my well, ammo and stuck <laughs> it back. Right. So, so – a <laughs> couple of things, bro. I thought about it. I thought about it. Uh, a couple of reasons that was difficult. We lived in a townhouse at the time, and we lived just outside of the city limit. So I know that I know my neighbors heard it. Okay. So I'm like, I can either try to carry, you know, cover this thing up, or I can jump ahead of this thing and and try to just put a spin on it positively before we just get this shots fired complaint from the local police department. Yeah. So, um. I, I give a call. Supervisor does everything he has to do. And they send some folks over from from training. The training unit comes over. But then they also, based on department policy, they call the local jurisdiction to come and do uh, a, a report. An incident report. For, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you how I realized I might have signed up for the wrong agency. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> but but also, I have, I have my supervisors come. They're in my house. Yeah. Okay. And I have the local guys come in. The local guys come through and they're just like, so one of you guys had an AD, huh? And they're like, yeah, you know, we got to document it. And the guy was like, why? <laughs> <laughs> like, for what? Yeah. You, you know, anybody hurt? He said, no. He said, did he point it in a safe direction? He said, yeah. I mean, the mistakes happen. <laughs> you need, <laughs> what do you need us Look, for? So I, bro, look, I'm, I'm looking at my supervisor like, and, you know? He's like, no, nah, we need we need documented. I was like, man. So then they take my wife in the kitchen, and they're asking her questions like, hey, uh, has he been violent? Uh, oh, man, he, that's got to be humiliating. Has he put hands on you? And I was like, oh, my God. They're knocking on neighbor's doors like there was shots fired next door. And every, everything okay in here? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just dying inside. I was like, man, I shouldn't have said nothing. But, you know, it's fine. They confiscated my firearm, had to go recall the next day. And it was it was a hot mess. Wow. man. That was definitely and i think because of how it was handled and i i don't i don't frown on the process and procedure at all i think that's i get it i understand it and the legalities and the liability of it uh but i think because of how it was handled that's where the embarrassment was <laughs> uh both with my inability to just you know check but uh, also the, the 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 investigation that followed uh, speaking of embarrassing moments and investigating uh, investigations that follow you had a, an investigation that you were working on and you almost caught yourself as the suspect. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Oh, we're digging in the archives. Now, man. So, here's a good part, man. All of this was early in my career. This is before any of the special assignments. This was me on the road as a rookie. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we, we got to learn in a safe space. Um, I had some partners of mine, man, and we were all cadets. Mm -hmm. One of the things that that agency really prided itself in is that the people at the top of that organization have been there since day one. And these were folks who came in as explorers and cadets and worked their way to the top of that command staff. And um, I was in this cohort. They only had four cadets hired at a time. Mm -hmm. And three of us became police officers within two academies of each other. And so we all ended up on evening watch in the same spot. And so we would go, we were super proactive. I mean, we were 21 years old, full of vigor. Yeah. Like, you know, we ain't waiting for no call to come out. We're going to be proactive. Right. You know? Right. We, I remember those days. Oh, come on, man. We were ready to go. So 
I was working uh, a particular district in the city at the time that was plagued with a lot of part one offenses, especially some narcotics violations and issues that we were dealing with. Well, so, now, what is part one? I'm actually not familiar with that term. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's your it's your most violent. Okay. So it's our sexual assaults, armed robbery, burglary, homicides, you know, uh, things of those nature. Those really kind of top tier. If you have a Comstat meeting, the ones people care about, okay. you know. Gotcha. Yes. <laughs> so we, we had a lot of that happening in this particular district that I was working in. And uh, so what we would do is we would park the cars. We do a walk and patrol behind some of the areas in the dark and see if we could sneak up on people doing some hand to hand transactions and things like that. And so we go out one night. It's three of us. Uh, myself, uh, another former cadet, and then a guy who was a, uh, army vet. Oh no, he was an air force vet. Excuse mm-hmm. me. Oh, burping on the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he was a, he was a air force vet and we, um, decided, so there's this school and, and where all of this stuff was happening, all of these hand to hand open air transactions were taking place behind this school. And so what we decided was that my, my partner who was a former cadet was going to walk around the front of the school and flush him towards the back and myself and the gentleman who was retired air force, uh, was, we were going to be in the back waiting to catch Uh him. Okay. Just ready to wrangle him. So we, we deploy, we walk out and, and we end up meeting each other halfway, you know, and we didn't see anybody. And so my partner that walked around the front, I asked him, I say, what, where were the guys at? He said, Oh man, they walking down the street. We could see him. They're walking away. And one of them was carrying something massive. I said, what's he carrying? He said, man, he's carrying a TV. It's just two young guys are helping a grandma move. They're just walking between, between buildings and they're moving to unit, whatever, whatever. <laughs> so me and the air force guy, we we're just like, okay. Oh. All right. It's kind of strange, but okay. You know, it's like, you know, bro, it's like 1130 at night. You move it at 1130. My man's walking around with a big screen TV and everything else. And so we were just like, all right, uh, you know, he he talked to him. So as we were standing there talking about it, we get radio tones Uh for a burglary and burglary in progress is how it came out. And so we're like, beep, beep, beep. They call my number. They they call my partner's number. And they say, you know, burglary in progress. They give the location and it's right there, like like on the other side of this fence line. Uh And so, again, we still were rookies. We hadn't really put it together yet. So we're like, oh, man, we're right here. So jump over some fences. We get to the house. We're ready to catch some perps. But we get there, and the homeowners say, man, we just missed them. Some guys broke into the house. And so I'm walking through. We start doing a little visual inventory. Me and the Air Force guy are asking questions. You know, all right, don't contaminate the crime scene. You know, we're here in the area. It can't be far kind of thing. Well, my partner who walked around in front of the building who talked to the guys who were helping their grandma move, (laughs) he gets this this look on his face. And he's just like, and he says, "Uh, sir, that TV that's missing, (laughs) that wouldn't happen to be a Sony, would it? And the guy was like, yeah. And he says, do you have a family computer? He says, yeah, upstairs. And he was like, show me. He runs upstairs real quick. He he says, uh, oh, my computer's gone. He was like, that wouldn't happen to be a Hewlett Packard, would it? He was like, he said, uh, yeah, how did you know? He ran downstairs. He was like, that was the guys. It just just takes off running. And so me and the, me, me and the other officer were just like, man, 
you clown. Like <laughs> we had these perps. So anyway, so it gets better. Okay. After we realize we just played part in letting these guys go after a, a burglary that just took place, you know, 50 feet away. Um, we processed our own crime scenes. Yeah. You know, we, we were, you know, we lifted DNA, we, we lifted fingerprints. And so rookie me, um, you know, I start dusting the TV stand and everything else. Well, I got some great latent prints, man. I'm, I mean, these are like pristine latent prints, man. <laughs> and uh, oh, so man. I get my little tape out, you know, I got my fresh powder cause you don't want to cross contaminate with the DNA stuff. This was new. It just came out guidance and I start lifting prints and sitting, sit, submitting everything. And something that the agency did was they would give out certificates whenever you had a hit, whether that was an APHIS hit or, or a nibbin hit on a gun or a fingerprint, anything that was submitted that actually re- resulted in something. They would do a pretty big little thing for you, do a roll call, you know, <laughs> name would go on a little certificate and everything. So, man, it's like it's months down the road. You know, we didn't forgot about the whole thing. We didn't really kind of tell everybody exactly what happened. We just, you know the roll call man and the supervisor says hey guys we have a we have a um uh an aphis hit <laughs> we, we got an aphis hit with a fingerprint lifted at a crime scene and we're like oh somebody did it you know everybody just <laughs> acted up oh somebody did it who's it who is it and they said come on up here dunlap i was like hey. you know <laughs> celebrating <laughs> when i get to the front and they clown me. He said, man, okay, so on this date at this time, Officer Dunlap responded to this crime scene, lift the fingerprints and anything. We have a positive suspect identification in the name of Officer Dunlap who lifted his own prints. And I was like, sign, look, signed by the chief. Like, just, just oh, you know what I'm man. like. Oh man! So they said, so you you process that whole crime scene without gloves, huh? And I was like, yeah. oh my yeah, goodness, so, yeah, man. Oh, and so to tell you the truth, too, uh, a couple of months uh, after that, some some young men were arrested for. Um, a pretty i think it was a robbery don't don't quote me on they were arrested and they they went down to our secure detention facility for juveniles mm-hmm. and uh one of the things that they were doing while they were being questioned was they um well i'm sorry while they were detained is they were bragging and uh we actually ended up closing that case because the young men who were charged with some other crime were bragging to the other kids in detention that they had gotten away with a burglary after convincing a police officer that they were helping their grandma move. <laughs> oh man. So, yeah, we actually ended up closing that case, but it took a little time. That is crazy. Well, since yeah. since you have a great sense of humor and you've been uh, you know, we, we you allowed me to use you to pick on yourself, you yeah, do man. you you have done some pretty amazing work and you've gotten some some accommodations for uh, some life-saving measures. So um, why don't you tell me about maybe the first, um, I think it was the first opportunity that you had to save someone's life. Yeah. So the first one was um, right after, are you familiar with CIT? A crisis intervention team. Yes. Uh, NAMI. Okay. So our agency in Virginia made it basically mandated that every officer in the department be CIT trained. We took mental illness very, very strongly, primarily because where we were located, we were surrounded by military bases, Fort Eustis, Fort Monroe, Langley Air Force Base, Oceana, Naval Station, Norfolk, Portsmouth, Naval Station. Like there were military vets everywhere. Mm-hmm. So we had a high population of military personnel with mental illness and who were homeless. 
So um, getting mental, getting trained to navigate mental illness was important for the team. So I just graduated from our, our CIT uh, program. I was, uh, see, I was doing gang. I, I was gang task force at the time. So I had an unmarked car, finished court, driving home on my day off. And I happened to drive underneath an overpass and I see what looks like somebody dangling off the edge of this overpass feet like swinging Mm -hmm. and it's kind of that thing where i almost ignored it you know because it just looked like somebody might have just been chilling but also it didn't Mm -hmm. so i you know keyed up on the radio and i said hey radio do we do we have any calls of suspicious persons on the bridge at such and such location or um suicidal behavior or anything like that and he said no no we don't have everything's quiet um and so I just decided, let me go down to the next exit, get off the interstate, loop around and see what I can find. So I did. I pulled the car around. And uh, long story short, man, I, I get up the bridge and there's this uh, barricade in front of a barricade. Mm-hmm. So you you had to get over the barricade to get to where this person was. It was intentional. You couldn't do it accidentally. And so this person is on the other side of this barricade sitting, looking over traffic. They've got a suit jacket off and it's draped over the side of the railing. And they're just looking straight down at traffic. Um, and so I uh, approach the subject from the side, but I'm, I'm making sure he knows I'm here, you know, and I'm, I'm doing all my CIT stuff, mm-hmm. you know, I'm trying to do uh, build some rapport. And I said, hey, can I talk to you for a second? You look like you're a little distraught. Look like you're upset. I don't I don't want you to stop what you're doing. I just want to have a conversation with you. And, uh, you know, he gives me the, don't come any closer, you know, and what he reveals to me in that time is this is someone who was struggling to find work for his family, Mm -hmm. um, had been on a number of job interviews and because of, I think a, a past history was unable to secure a job and had decided at this particular point in time that they were more valuable to their family dead than alive. Wow. And uh, I mean, this, and he's crying. This is not, you know, he's not taking this lightly. He understands the weight of this decision that he's getting ready to make. And um, I, I'm trying to say the things and do the things to convince this individual to just reconsider. And he says, hey, I know that I know the things uh, I'm, I'm familiar with. But that's I, I need to do this. I have to do this. Luckily, I had another officer arrive who took over conversations and communication and started talking to him. And I was able to reposition myself quietly mm-hmm. and, and, and tactfully behind his person in a place in a way he couldn't see me. Uh, we had uh, state troopers on the interstate below uh, en route to shut down traffic. Um, and uh, we, we were running out of time before that that happened. Uh, you know, at this point, this person's standing up, arms are extended kind of a thing, mm-hmm. getting ready to leap. And so I made a knee jerk decision, ran across the median. Um, and I think I downed my belt because, you know, we keys and everything jiggling like I didn't want to I didn't want to be heard. I think I downed the belt and sprinted across the median reached over the first barrier so I could get to the second barrier as my man was leaning. Oh, wow. And was able to grab him by the back of his belt. And then the other officer was communicating, grabbed me by what was left of my belt. Wow. And and we pulled each other back over the rail. And I held that man on the side of that bridge, and he just cried. Mm. And, um, you know, we had some other CIT officers come, and we ended up taking that gentleman to the uh, local uh, local hospital for for psychiatric evaluation, obviously. But um, I was uh, 
you know, it, it was recognized and 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 by the department as a you know for for a life saving award. So that was the that was the first one I received. Do you remember um, how many? opportunities you you had directly to save someone's life and i say directly because oftentimes you're at an accident your first responders mm-hmm. you'll stop bleeding those types of things and mm-hmm. and get them on the way but you know you've you've done cpr you've you've directly uh multiple times yeah. and a lot of officers it's, it's almost like the the shooting side of things you know officers most officers will go through their entire career and never fire their weapon um i never had an opportunity where i had to directly, or I was re- directly responsible for saving someone's life. Now I was only on four and a half years or so, but, um, you know, just, do you have an idea how many? I don't, um, I'll tell you, I did a, I did an FBI training class in another, in another jurisdiction once. Um, and while we were away at lunch, we saved someone's life who, who died in the restaurant. Oh, wow. You know, CPR. Yeah. So when I tell you that, uh, I have had to do CPR on multiple people and bring them back from death. Um, I didn't realize how rare that was. Yeah, that's yeah, right? that's the, uh, yeah, it's rare. There was a yeah, I, I was at a hospital. I was at the hospital once uh, and it was actually the second lifesaving ward I, I received where we I, I did CPR on a gentleman. And we were I mean, we were we were breaking bones in this man's body. Mm-hmm. I refused, you yeah. know, but he, you know, we ended up saving his life. And I remember talking with the nurses and they said, wow, you know, that you did CPR and the guy came back. And I was like, yeah, I mean, y'all in the hospital, y'all did all the time, right? It, the nurses and doctors are always like, yes, yeah, it's, it's never worked for us. Oh. Like, like, by, <laughs> that's <laughs> encouraging. By the, by the time we've had to do CPR, it's like, it's too late, you know? And I was just like, whoa, you know, wow. um, there have been multiple times where, you know, just out with my family, uh, I'm thinking of five different occasions in restaurants alone. Um, I did uh, CPR on uh, a baby girl who was hit by a car. Mm. Uh, CPR on a, on a little boy who uh, went unresponsive in his car. Family road trip from down from Virginia into Atlanta. Um, gentleman died. Uh, we weren't able to save him. Died one night working uh, morning watch at a warehouse. Uh, myself and a rookie firefighter rotated CPR on this guy for 30 minutes trying to bring him back. It's just been multiple, multiple situations. And uh, I think it's one of the biggest reasons that I became a CPR instructor um, and spent a lot of time. It was one of the things that we did at the church where we were certifying um, other churches, community members. We were certifying law enforcement guys just coming through. We were myself and my partner were BLS instructors and my wife became a BLS instructor. She's a former dispatcher. So Mm -hmm. she's a, she's gotten, I think, two life-saving awards too. walking someone for through it directing wow for directing cpr over over the phone for dispatch so it's just been this weird you know i'm not sure why it's us but we've had multiple opportunities to be present when people were were facing uh some pretty dire circumstances and, and we've been fortunate enough to be able to lay hands and and help people breathe again you know well i was gonna see if you want to get together and get a bite to eat but i'm i'm afraid i may need cpr so i'm just gonna pass on that brother <laughs> hey i mean i might be the best person to be in a room with though that's, so. that's, that's the better way to look at it right there yeah I, yeah I have a friend of mine that actually um she has created a product uh called she's she's local she's here in chattanooga and she's i, I, I think i know cpr rap 
CPR yep. rep. Yep. As a matter of fact, I'm going to have her on uh, another podcast. I'm launching a new podcast. So everybody listen up, look for Dean's List podcast. And I want to have you on that podcast as well, because we're running out of time here. But you have a lot of amazing stories from your time doing security for some pretty high profile um, people. And I'm going to have you on that mm-hmm. podcast to share some stories about some of your time out there. Um, as a matter of fact, real quick, why don't you pick a, a, a story maybe uh, from your time as doing security for for, you know, entertainers that uh, that you could share with us real quick? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Um, I, I, one, of, one of the most uh, memorable ones was uh, we were doing security for uh, <laughs> a particular female artist who had come to town uh, and was performing. And so the unit I was in was called the bid unit. We were basically the tourism policing district. And so our convention center, the, the arena, all of the things that happened there went through our, mm-hmm. unit. we were the, we were going to be there. Our guys kind of ran, ran those things. And so we were doing all the backstage security for that. And uh, one night Beyonce came to town. Uh-huh. And uh, so this was early on Beyonce had just kind of separated from destiny's child was doing her own solo stuff. And um, I don't even remember what song it was, but we were there for, for sound check. And, you know, we're lying in the front of the stage. We're in the pit, you know, that that gap between the front of the stage and where the crowd can get closest to the stage. We're in that pit. And there's nobody in there but us and, you know, the sound check team and her security. And so, man, right in the middle of sound check, she walks to the edge of the stage and starts doing her little Beyonce thing. And she's she's singing to us, yeah. you know, I'm. Well, you know, she's just performing for the, for the little, you know, the officers there at the corner of the stage. So I'm like, hey, babe, what's up? You yeah, know? yeah. And so I pulled out my little flip phone because that's what we had at the time, you know, point two megapixels. <laughs> pulled out my little flip phone and, and start video videoing this. So because I, I wanted to send it to my wife and uh, or show it to her, I don't even know if you could send video back then. I don't remember, but uh, her security officer got so upset. And he's like, you can't take video of this stuff. Anytime video comes out, we lose money on resales for DVDs. Uh-huh. You know, and I was like, bro, this I'm not no fan. You know, I'm I'm full uniform right now. Back up, yeah, you yeah. know. Um, and I remember I told you I wasn't the biggest dude at the time. You know what I'm saying? I was bigger than I was in the first story, but you know, I still wasn't big. You know, celebrities walk around with some muscle. This man was 250 some odd pounds. He looked like a linebacker. Yeah. So I'm looking up to him. You know, <laughs> you know, hey man, look, look, now you gonna back up now? <laughs> you know, so you know, we started getting into this tussle, and so some of the other officers had to come pull me back and pull him back, and it turned into a thing uh-huh. with the two of us arguing. So eventually, somebody goes and gets the major, and and our major was. He was a smooth dude, man. He he was. He was that dude who would just kind of throw a cigarette on the corner of his lip and say, I dare somebody to mess with me. I, I dare you to, you know. I don't even know if he ever smoked the thing, man. It, it was just there for decoration. Oh, man. So he's got this thing hanging on the side of his lip, and he said, uh, he said, what happened inside? I said, man, you know, I just got into it with a little security guy. It's nothing. He said, I was giving you a hard time. <laughs> Let's go inside. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you know. <laughs> so I'm sitting around watching him, and I feel like like a little kid, you know, at school with the teacher, you know. <laughs> I got Daddy Major over here talking to the security guy. You know, and he's like, you you got into one of my offices over here. He's like, yeah, man, you take a video. It's against policy protocol. He said, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, look, let me, let me tell you something. <laughs> He says, when y'all rolled up in here, y'all rolled up into my city. <laughs> he says, so whatever my officers say, that goes. 
And, he, and he, man, he chewed out this man so much. He said, if he wants a video, he going to video. We shut this whole thing down tonight. This is my house. Tonight. I was like, oh, my gosh. Bro, I'm back here in the corner like, Major, you ain't got to do all that, man. It's not that. So I'll just put the phone up. And, uh, and he, you know, he, he yelled back twice at the Major. He said, oh, he's like, your whole entourage can leave today. You stay right here, and I'll babysit you here in the city. I got a, I got a nice hot cock for you. If that's what you want to do, you want to talk back. We we got a place for you. Disorderly conduct in this city. Don't take much. I was like, oh my, <laughs> you know. So, uh, it, you know, it was funny. It, it was it was one of those things. The concert went on and everything oh, was, was okay after that, man. But yeah, I got into it with Beyonce's little security. That man. is, well, I say a little. I was a little. Yeah, you man you were a little time, man, man, but you had the equalizer too. Little. You know, you had the great equalizer. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Oh right. man. Well, you know what you you have. Um, I, I I want you to tell a little bit about what you're doing now because you've taken a lot of these skills that you've used over the past several years that you've learned with uh, you know your negotiation tactics and things like that, and you actually have launched a business that's already taken off and you're helping some folks. Tell me about that. Yeah, man. So um, the long and short of it is this. When I left law enforcement, I recognized that most of the leaders I talked to in the boardroom at the executive level, I went on to carry on some executive level roles and work on some state task forces. I recognize that a lot of leaders exhibit the same behaviors that suspects do in interrogation room. And and I think as police officers, we we get tunnel vision sometimes with our career that it's hard to understand that the, the applicable skills that we take that we gain and, and we don't really know how to press that into the real world. But the reality is, you know, a lot of leaders have the same issues that suspects do. Mm -hmm. They're afraid of being found out. Mm -hmm. Right. They're afraid to admit they've done things they're not proud of. They're afraid to ask for help. And the more I the more time I spent in boardrooms, the more I was like, man, you know, I spent an entire career talking to people who were afraid of being found out and afraid to admit that they had done things they weren't proud of. So I developed some tools to help leaders grow, and I was able to grow some leaders, some executive leaders, some directors and into some pretty big roles and uh, did that in my capacity as an executive director. Um, and eventually I put a shingle out and I started my own consulting firm called Conflict Dish. It's a it's a spin on conflict strategy, conflict management. Uh, we try to make it not so um, hoity toity, uh -huh. so buttoned up and, you know, it's it's not so polished, but you know, the idea behind conflict ish is that we help leaders and teams navigate all the ish that comes with conflict. So that's tarnished rapport, hellish attitude, squeamish conversations, diminished productivity. We can help you with all that ish. And, um, it's really cool. We bring a lot of hostage negotiation and crisis intervention principles into the boardroom. We help leaders and managers navigate difficult conversations more effectively. Uh, we start at level zero. You know, one of the best questions I was ever asked as a negotiator was by another negotiator when I was trying out for the team. Mm -hmm. And I said, how do I become a hostage negotiator? And he said, well, how are you most likely to get someone killed? And I, I said, no. What do you mean? He says, how are you most likely to bring your dirt into a conversation that's already hot and contested and make it worse? What are you going to do and say that's going to make a bad situation turn into a crisis? And, you know, on my toes, I'm like, I'm impatient. Mm. I'm impatient. I will abandon an effective process simply because I don't think it's working fast enough and I can put people at risk. And he says, OK, if you know your flaws, that's that's where we start. Okay, because you need to be able to not function in that space when you're on the phone or on the megaphone or whatever that thing is. And I take that same mindset with me everywhere I go when I talk to leaders and I say, how are you most likely to get someone under your care hurt? Mm -hmm. 
How are you most likely to do something that's going to negatively impact you, your, your, your followers or your organization? And, and we start from there. I call it level zero. And so uh, it's a conflict strategy approach that deals with the individual. I'm not, I don't do a lot of help you have a, neg- a conversation with somebody else that you don't like. We are working on helping people get honest with themselves about themselves. Wow. I want you to understand what your conflict tolerances are, your conflict style and tendencies are so that when you show up to a negative situation, as I say, I want to help you improve how you show up when things are blowing up. When you show up, I want you to be able to put your best foot forward. So we're developing conflict presence, conflict competence so that leaders can lead themselves and others more effectively through adversity. You know, that's very refreshing because I um, am a middle level leader, I guess you could say. I've been uh, in management for quite some time, sales management, sales leadership. And you, you, you hear a lot about leadership and how to lead people, but you don't hear a lot about just what you talked about. Okay. What, what, what is, what is your weakness that's going to negatively affect someone else? And now how do we work from that point? So I I love that approach, man. That's really, really cool. So if somebody wanted to find you or contact you, how, how would they, how would they find you? Yeah, man. Conflictish.com. Conflict ISH or hit me on Instagram and join the multitude of people who've joined on and followed here. Um, you know, conflictish and there's a there's links and you can set up a discovery call and chat with me. I'll tell you, I've got a soft spot in my heart for law enforcement officers and uh, we've done some trauma recovery programs and, and, and some things for for first responders. But really where we're at now is connecting with agencies. I think uh, a lot of us. In the law enforcement community, first responders, uh, fire, even military, we do really, really good at being technically proficient. Mm-hmm. We, we, we understand IQ very, very well. What we don't get really well is EQ. Um, and so uh, while we're developing our technical proficiency, where we lack is human conceptual skills. Wow. We don't know how to work with people very well. We don't know how to work with ideas very well. So we're one track mind. You know, we've got a very closed minded approach, man in a white tower approach to solving problems. And then the thing is, man, when you get out in the real world and you recognize the world doesn't work the way we think it does or the way it works in, 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 in blue culture, mm-hmm. most people go back because they realize how much they fit out. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, it, it's dangerous. It sucks out here, you know. Um, but if you have a desire to eventually become a leader outside of law enforcement, you know, culture, you really have to learn to develop these other skills. And um, I love that I get to, to be a part of that. But yeah, conflictist.com or Instagram or TikTok and conflictist. You can watch some videos and things I put out there and help people get better one day at a time. Yeah, that's good stuff. And send me those links and I'll also put them in the show notes. So if people, for whatever reason, can't remember conflictish, just go to the show notes. We'll have the links there. You can click on the links. And, you know, obviously I cannot uh, close this show without giving a shout out to my man, Eric Buchanan at Eric Buchanan and Associates. Um, you know, you you are if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that name and you know that if you have uh, been paying for disability insurance and you have something, an injury or illness or something that causes you to become disabled where you can't do your job anymore. And then you go file your disability claim, you know, for that insurance that you've been paying for and they deny your claim. Call Eric Buchanan and Associates. Um, this guy's great. He understands the law. He's going to fight very hard to get you on his side or uh, get 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 you the benefits that you deserve. It's not his side. It's just getting you the benefits that you deserve and that you've been paying for. You can find him at BuchananDisability.com or 877-634-2506. 877-634-2506. That's Eric Buchanan and Associates. He is going to get you the benefits that you deserve. Man, Ryan, I appreciate you, sir. As a matter of fact, 
I'm I'm putting this out there right now. I'm gonna have to have you come back on this show because we didn't even get through some of the some crazy stuff that that you've just seen. So I'm gonna have you come back to nine one what later on. But I'm definitely gonna have you come on the dean's list and and tell some more of those stories about some of that the security details you've been doing and let's talk about some stars and laugh at them a little bit. But uh, I appreciate you, sir very much for joining uh, me today. And I want to thank all my listeners for listening. And uh, also just make sure that you do subscribe and you uh, share the podcast so that others can learn about it and uh, spread the word as well. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give me a five-star rating. That helps me so much. And also one last thing, if you have a guest idea, someone that you would like to have on the show, shoot me an email at 91what dot podcast at gmail.com and until next time everyone have a blessed day thanks for listening to 91 what we hope you enjoyed the show if you have comments or suggestions please email us at 91 what dot podcast at gmail.com and thanks to carlos bail bonding and eric buchanan and associates for making this episode possible 